0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Ajiman, Personal finance writer at Investors Chronicle, and James Robson and Pietro Nichols, managers of RM Secure Direct Lending. You are probably aware that large companies and governments issue bonds, a type of loan, and may well hold a fund in your portfolio which invests in them. Over the last few years, these have been joined by a number of new investment trusts, such as RM Secured Direct Lending, which also focus on debt. But rather than invest in large corporate or government bonds, typically these trusts invest in more unusual areas of the debt market. So James, Pietro, what type of debt does RM Secured Direct Lending invest in?
1: Okay, so RM Secured uh, Direct Lending is an investment trust. uh, We're listed on the LSE. And our objective, investment objective, is to invest in larger SMEs and and middle market corporates.
0: SMEs being small to medium-sized enterprises. Correct.
1: Correct. So our focus is probably on the larger end of the small to medium-sized enterprises and and mid-market corporates. Uh, And really all of our lending is is secured on business assets. So we're looking at plant, property and equipment and cash flows such as receivables. Um, All of our lending is secured. Uh, and we're targeting a 6.5% dividend for our shareholders.
0: Why do you mainly target debt secured against assets such as real estate, plant and machinery?
1: So, from from our perspective, it's, it's about recovery as a lender. So, we're looking to make loans that are secured against physical assets. So, simply, if things go wrong, uh, we have uh, what we would call recovery. So, we can go back, uh, enforce against those assets – uh, and effectively get our investors' money back. So we're looking at the sort of downside protection, if you like, um, for investors.
0: Okay. Now, you said that they typically pay uh, quite high yield. I think you said 6%, mm-hmm. which is very attractive um, in the current climate. Um, what type of dividends and yield does that enable the investment trust? of them secured direct lending to pay?
2: We're targeting a dividend of six and a half percent per annum. So really, we tend to make investments that are, that are significantly north of that to obviously cover the costs of running the investment trust and our management fees as well. Um, so really, we look to make investments that are north of eight percent. Um, eight to 12 percent is typically our region. And really, that's because I think in the market itself, anything, let's say, a little bit higher than 12% tends to have too much risk and maybe unsecured and not have the characteristics that we look for as a, as an investor in, in um, debt securities.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, this is obviously all very attractive, but will you be able to maintain this kind of level of dividend and yield going forward?
2: We know it's an aggressive uh, dividend target, target 6.5%. In our first year, we targeted 4% and exceeded that and met um, 4.2 uh, this year it's six and a half percent we know it's aggressive but the portfolio is is um is positioned well to to kind of meet those objectives over 50 percent of our portfolio is uh, linked to libor which means that as interest rates start to rise those int- those loans the interest rates on those loans rise with them so that essentially means that that will pass through ultimately to our investors and the investment trust which is great
0: Okay, I mean, on that note, um, you say you've got um, you've got some protection. So, um, you know, how well protected or how vulnerable is the investment trusts and what invests in to inflation and interest rate rises?
2: When we talk about interest rates and how vulnerable the portfolio is to inflation and, and those types of things, I think actually, in some ways, without wanting to kind of blow our trumpet, it's it's the other way around. It's less vulnerable and it's actually well protected with. Over half the portfolio um, linked to inflation, or rather interest rates, that essentially means it'll rise as interest rates rise. The other 50% of the portfolio has a very short duration of of 1.8 years, which essentially means that we are less exposed because those loans will mature and then we'll be able to reinvest those loans at higher interest rates as the market starts to move higher with a tightening of monetary policy.
0: Okay. Now, I mean, on that subject, the um I suppose the issue of interest rates, inflation and um debt investments is quite topical at the moment. Um so just just more widely, how does the kind of debt that you invest in compare to the kinds of mainstream debts that corporate bond funds invest in?
1: Okay. So, a significant part of the portfolio that we have within RM secured direct lending uh, a debt instruments that we've structured ourselves so we as a business originate with borrowers structure um, our own transactions so we effectively write the loan instruments with our borrowers now that's very different from a from a public loan fund the other thing is that we rarely invest in in public loan issues so most of the portfolio that we have is a private debt securities and what that means is that there's less volatility and there is greater investor protections because the deals that we structure we look for certain um attributes when we're structuring a transaction and that's investor protections such as covenants and in this borrower friendly market that we have and the environment that we're in typically in the public deals there aren't that many investor protections for borrow- for for lenders so f- for our transactions it's about borrower protections and protecting our investors' capital should things go wrong. To that end, it's about information covenants. If you're lending someone money, you want to understand what's going on with their business in a timely fashion. It's about cash flow covenants to ensure that there's enough serviceability of cash to to service our debt repayments. So they're the sort of key differences. And really as well, it's about a focused approach. So for us, currently, and Pietro might talk later about our portfolio, but we have 25 or 26 investments within the portfolio Each one of those investments we understand, we've done the due diligence on. You know, it's very much a a credit-led approach uh, with a concentrated portfolio that, that typically we structure ourselves so that we really understand what's going on with those loans and with those businesses.
0: You said you said it is quite a concentrated portfolio mm-hmm. relative to your sort of average corporate bond yeah. fund, which might have sixty, seventy, or sometimes even hundreds of bonds. Um, why do you have it concentrated, and do you, do you intend to grow it from the twenty five, twenty six investments that yeah, you have?
1: I think that that's a very good point. I think first thing is when you're structuring your own transactions, you can't structure a very small transaction; it's not cost effective. Um, to lend a very small amount of money and do a significant amount of due diligence and legal work. You have to have a a critical mass. The other point to add is that the type of loans that we're targeting, uh, we would say within the two or the the, the investment size is in the two to ten million pound size is our sweet spot because this is an area that's typically underserved by banks and other uh, larger direct lending funds who are looking to write larger tickets. So we have the sort of sweet spot in terms of size of of ticket that we're looking to write. For us, we're building the portfolio up. We've been going for 15 or 18 months now. Every month, the portfolio line items have grown. And also the investment trust has grown from a £50 million market cap to near £100 now. So the portfolio will grow and develop over the time. But it is about a focused and concentrated approach. Uh, We will increase the line items over time, but ultimately we we wouldn't envisage having hundreds of line items because that's simply not our objective. Um, The final, I think, difference between us and uh, a mainstream bond fund, if you like, is that for us it's about capital preservation and generating a steady and visible income flow. What we're not looking to do is to sort of make 20% this year because we think that there's a specific bond we want to invest in, see some capital growth, and then sell it next year. We're about making long-term investments, uh, doing our analysis and credit work on those investments, understanding the dividend or the income that they're going to pay us, and, and then holding those investments to maturity.
0: talked a lot about the um, credentials of the area you invest in. What would be examples of um, some of the companies you hold in your portfolio
2: yeah, I think there's there's a number of, of, of investments that we've made. I think to date we've made twenty six investments across sixteen sectors. There's a couple that stand out in my mind. Uh one of them would be Petura Asset Finance. It's a fantastic business set up a number of years ago. Management team are very robust, came out of one of the large banks as as they do these days. But the business essentially is an asset finance and leasing business. And they they have we have security over a thousand different tractors, diggers, pieces of plant property and equipment essentially um, for tenors of 48 to 60 months. That's a fantastic business and we generate a very nice return for our shareholders on that investment. Another one would probably be Leoska Hotel, which is just actually round the corner from the studio. Um, it's a high-end boutique hotel designed by a kind of world-famous architect. Um, it used to be an old Nunivier that's been converted and was recently recently featured in a couple of the high-end travel mags you know that that again is a a very nice investment for us it's a very low leverage in terms of the the amount of debt that we've put against the the asset value Um, and the property is fantastic and it's a trading hotel these are the kind of investments that when we talk about lending against plant property and equipment those are the kind of things that we're really talking about really
0: Okay, now a lot of funds um, state the names of their top ten holdings mm-hmm. on their fact sheets, but you don't. Why don't you do this?
2: Well, I think transparency is incredibly important, and if we look at the, if we look at what we do, you know, we every month we provide a monthly uh, report on our investments, and we'll name in that month those investments or divestments or refinancings that we've made, and we'll name those companies where we can. Some of the the nature of some of the lending that we do is is private, so the information that we can disclose tends to be a little bit more restricted than than public bond issues. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to be less transparent. I think compared to a lot of our investment trust spears, we're, we're very transparent. But as an additional layer of oversight, we also have a independent valuation agent that values every one of our investments every month as well uh, for the benefit of the board and shareholders. So I think when it comes to transparency, we are trying to lead the way despite not being able to necessarily disclose the name of every single investment within the portfolio.
0: Obviously, there's a lot of good things about these investments, but as of everything, there's also risks. So what are the main risks of investing in smaller company debt?
2: I think that, you know, there, there, are, there are risks in lending in general. I think when we, when we look at smes and middle market corporates and compare them let's say with larger corporates they'll tend to be more focused on a specific segment of a market or with a specific product so i think one of the the kind of key risks let's say is that market or that area of that that business kind of compressing in terms of margins and those kind of things they tend to have slightly less diverse asset bases and less you know expansion in terms of geographic markets so I, I think as you move through cycles there are definitely times where you know smes and middle market corporates can definitely face more pressures than those global corporates but at times it flips on its head as well you know things like brexit which presents a challenge to, to you know be some of the global corporates who trade internationally the smaller smes might be more domestically focused and actually they're likely to maintain their businesses, actually, because of what they're doing. They're focused on the domestic and the UK consumer rather than necessarily, you know, international European markets.
0: Might that not be a bad thing, though, because um the kind of like the... Um kind of general view is that if there's an economic downturn due to the UK leaving the European Union, the types of companies that are going to be worst affected are the domestic facing ones, and typically that's the small and middle-sized ones. So, I mean, are you concerned and are you doing anything to mitigate this risk?
2: Yeah, I mean, as as a lender, of, of course, you know, I think the way that we talk about it internally is we only really have three scenarios, our base case, our downside, and our disaster scenario. And, and every single lending decision that we make really factors in all, the, all three of those scenarios from the outset. So if we do go through a period of difficulty, that's one thing. If, however, we go into a, a very prolonged period of, of trouble, then really that's where the recovery and the security comes in. And that's why... You know, the name of our trust is RM Secured Direct Lending that's because all our lending is secured. And so really if you have security over that plant, property, equipment or those business cash flows, you're not going to wake up the next morning and find that the business has disappeared because you have physical security there which you can unfortunately, you know, enforce through, you know, the various mechanisms. But that that's one of the, the tools that, you know, we will have in our toolkit if the market turns.
0: I'm sticking with the subject of I suppose, possible risks. Um, like with a lot of investment trusts that pay a nice dividend, you're trading at a premium to net asset value. But if interest rates rise in the UK, uh, as some people expect will start happening next month, do you expect your share price to fall and the premium to fall to a discount?
1: That's a fair question. And I think I would just follow on and, and add to what Pietro said there about the environment that we're moving into. I think as an as investment team, we're cautious uh, about the, the, the near-term and the medium-term outlook. Uh, to that end, you know our focus is very much on investments in the non-cyclical space, uh, investments that therefore are less um, affected as we move through the cycle. Um, examples of that would be the, the asset finance business that Pietro has already outlined, um, care home businesses that we invest in, child care businesses. So these are businesses that the demographics support. Um, they will invariably be affected to some degree by Brexit. And when we look at the care home investments that we make and we speak with the management teams, uh, invariably it's on the staffing side that they say that they have issues. You know, it's in recruitment. But ultimately there's a, there's a requirement for these services. That's not going away. I think in terms of the specific question as we move through the cycle with interest rates, uh, as Pietro has already outlined, again we've tried to position ourselves for this. You know, our background is is in fixed income and credit, um, the whole team, and we're very aware of where we are in the interest rate cycle. And we've, from the word go, tried to position ourselves so that we would, uh, if at the very least, not be affected, and in the best case scenario, we'd actually benefit through a move a movement higher in, in interest rates. So the, the positioning of the portfolio has this element of liable linkage half the portfolio the coupons move higher as the interest rate cycle we move through it and the other half the portfolio will roll off and we can redeploy into high yielding investments so it's not to say that we won't trade it at a discount to to net asset value because the sector itself has seen huge amount of inflows over the recent years and the marginal buyer disappears for, for the investment trust space and they're not necessarily looking for income and there are the marginal seller appears then absolutely you know there could be more sellers than buyers but in terms of how we feel over the medium to long term we're positioned our investors that stick with us through the cycle will benefit you know the nav will increase um i you know i simply can't tell where our share price will trade around that nav but i we do have a very firm view that as we move through the cycle we are very well positioned
0: how do you go about selecting the loans and bonds that you invest in
1: yeah, I think there's a
2: there's a there's a multi-step process. It's very rigorous. Um, we start with kind of origination and sourcing. That's kind of the the term that we use in in our in our industry. And really, that's about interfacing with borrowers directly, with their financial advisors, and with other market participants, uh, peers to ourselves, and other financial institutions who who um, don't have the capacity or don't want to invest in those types of businesses. Um, that, that really then is that the, the kind of first, let's say, stage um, from that. Then it's all about filtering those opportunities. We have various kind of credit criteria that are important to us. I guess our three pillars are very good management teams, cash flow visibility and uh, tangible security. But then on top of that, we've got ethical, social and corporate governance restrictions as well in terms of what we want to and what we don't want to invest in. Once they kind of go through those two layers of of the process, um, it's really down to our investment committee where we have, you know, James and myself and a couple of other external members uh, from the industry who sit on that. And then ultimately we decide if we want to invest, then we document that transaction and then we monitor that on an ongoing basis. And that's really the kind of cycle that we go through on an ongoing basis with every one of our investments from You know, the day they walk through the door to the day the investment matures and our our capital is repaid for our investors.
0: You mentioned you have um, ethical criteria. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what those are and um, why you have them? And also, would you classify RM secured Direct Lending as an ethical fund?
2: Yeah, I mean, we do have ESG criteria, ethical, social and corporate governance criteria. I mean, it would be very nice to classify us as a, a, an ESG, an ethical fund. Um, we, One of our largest investors is the CCLA, which is uh, basically manages money for the church. So I guess on that basis, we, we probably would be classified as a, an ethical investor. I think the reason why, you know, for us, we have this type of restrictions in, in our portfolio.
0: What, what are the restrictions, just specifically for us? Yeah, business? sure, um, they
2: are, you know, we don't invest in uh, weapons, munitions. Alcohol, tobacco, gambling, adult material, any of those types of things are completely off the table for us. And mm-hmm. it's just a hard line. Uh, we just we just don't invest in them. Um, we don't feel the need to.
0: Okay. Now, RM Secured Direct Lending is a relatively new fund, um, which only launched in December 2016. But how long has um, your team been involved with investing in smaller company debt?
2: I mean, RM Capital and the funds business, we were set up in 2010 um, and for the last, you know, eight years, we've been inv- in kind of advising on and investing in alternative credit in one form or another. This is our second fund that we manage at the moment, um, and it, it's something that the business and the team have have got decades of experience in, in investing, advising, and, and managing these types of things.
0: Okay, and do you plan to launch any more funds?
2: Yes, actually, we do. Um, we we received FCA approval um, two weeks ago now for our third fund. Which, will be a, which is going to be called RM Alternative Income. Um, and it will be a UCITS product, so open-ended, so a little bit different from an investment trust. Um, but that's going to launch in May. And you know it's, it's looking to capture the entire alternatives universe in one fund. So that'll be very exciting.
0: Okay, look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you, James and Pietro. A really interesting insight into your fund and the assets you invest in.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: The Financial Conduct Authority, the UK financial regulator, is bringing in new rules to try and make it clearer whether funds offer good value for money. Emma, how does the regulator propose doing this?
3: So, one measure that they suggested, Leonora, is um, asset managers to do an annual assessment of value, and that will be coming in from September 2019. And it's worth just reminding our listeners, you know, why this has come about. Last couple of years, the FCA looked into the asset management industry and produced a report on what they found. And basically, they found that there was weak price competition among asset managers and many investors were in poor value funds as a result of that. And so they suggested a package of measures to combat those issues. And this annual assessment of value is one of the measures.
0: Is it likely to give investors a clear picture of whether a fund offers good value for money?
3: As part of the annual assessment of value, asset managers will need to demonstrate their fund's value by assessing the quality of service, the performance of the funds, the fund's internal costs and also the economies of scale that exist within the fund and see whether or not they can achieve savings or benefits as a result of the fund size. And they're also going to need to look at their comparable market rates – both internally within the fund and externally amongst other asset managers. So it could potentially be a really good way um, to find out whether or not a fund is producing good value, but it really will depend on how it's implemented.
0: Right. So how will the FCA enforce it?
3: Well, they've got a few other measures as part of this package, including that authorised funds will need to have on their boards at least two independent directors, and these people will need to represent at least 25% of the board. Another factor that they've um, chosen to bring in is that an individual senior manager probably the chairman of the board, will be responsible for making sure the firm actually produces its annual assessment of value and recruits these independent directors and acts in the best interests of fund investors. And they'll be personally responsible for that.
0: Do analysts think this goes far enough?
3: Um, I think that, understandably, there's a range of opinions. Some analysts really think that this will improve things um, and others feel that of all, it could improve things. There are some things that the FCA could have gone further on. Some people feel that actually they haven't really addressed the main issue of how to get investors out of these poor value funds. So you know, it's all well and good having. An annual assessment of value being begun from September next year. But in the meantime, there's going to be lots of investors stuck in these poor value funds.
0: Now, you said um, this is a part of a package of reforms. So how else is the Financial Conduct Authority trying to improve things for investors?
3: Another big move, which has actually come in with immediate effect, is that they've decided to allow asset managers to move investors from more expensive share classes into cheaper share classes. And our listeners may remember that a few years ago, the SEA changed the regulations so that the fees of funds would no longer have to pay commission to financial advisors and intermediaries. And as a result, um, the fees dropped. And this move is to allow asset managers to be able to move investors in bulk away from those legacy, more expensive funds into these cleaner share classes.
0: But the requirement for asset managers to provide an assessment of value doesn't come into force for over a year. So what can you as an individual do in the meantime to ensure the funds you invest in are good value for money?
3: I think the main thing is to really pay attention to charges. This is one of the things that the essay was really keen to stress that investors do because they can make a huge difference to the returns that you're going to get overall, especially if you're investing for a very long time. So I would say that um, you should check your fund's costs and compare that to funds of similar size and mandates to see whether or not it's good value. Another thing that you can do to make sure that you're not investing in in um, a closet tracker, which is basically a fund that charges active management type um, fees for passive or tracker-like performance, i.e. just about keeping pace or underperforming a benchmark. So one thing you can do is to make sure that you're Uh, fund is actually consistently at least beating its its benchmark or at least not consistently underperforming it. Another thing to do is to check the fund's active share, namely how different it is from its benchmark in terms of its stock picking.
0: Thank you Emma and also see next week's issue for her guide on how to make sure that you are invested in funds most cost-efficient share classes. Impacts Environmental Markets invests in companies that provide environmental solutions and despite this specific focus it has been fairly successful in beating broader global equity indices. However, more recently it has underperformed one of its environmental benchmarks. Emma, you recently met the managers of this investment trust. Can you tell us a bit more?
3: Sure. I met John Foster, who's the manager of Impact's Environmental Markets Trust, which is actually an IC Top 100 fund. As you mentioned, they invest in companies that provide environmental solutions. And this can include things like renewable and alternative energy, waste management, water infrastructure and pollution control. So a whole range of areas. And as you mentioned last year, they produced very good returns, beating their benchmark, which is the MSCI World Index. But compared to the environmental be- benchmark, the FTSE Environmental Technologies 100 Index, um, they slightly underperformed that. And the manager said that that's basically because of the fact that they don't own um Tesla an electric vehicle manufacturer, which makes up 10% of that environmental index.
0: OK, now, although Impact's environmental markets doesn't hold Tesla, it still has exposure to the electric vehicle market. How does it get this and um, why don't
3: they like Tesla? Well, the main reason is that they're not sure about its valuation, which they think is is very high. Um, but in general, they also don't really like to invest in a single brand like that they prefer to get exposure to the electric vehicle market which they think is a good growth market and they prefer to get exposure by supplying in by investing companies that supply the critical parts of materials used to create electric vehicles and for example they hold umicore which is a belgian company that produces the cathode materials used in rechargeable batteries
0: what other areas does john forster think are good to invest in
3: um, there's greater awareness of plastic waste, um, which he thinks actually is having a huge impact on um, how governments respond to a challenge of, um, of, of plastic use, single use. And he thinks that we, as a result, we're going to see a lot more recycling happening. And so he thinks that this is an area that is likely to do well. For example, many countries are considering plastic deposit schemes where you would get a small amount of money back for recycling plastic bottles. And the trust owns a company which could do well as a result of this. Um, It's a Norwegian company called Tomra Systems. And it's the main supplier of reverse vending machines used for those bottle deposit schemes. And that's one area where the manager thinks that, you know, there could be further growth here.
0: Thank you, Emma. An interesting update. That's all we've got time for today. But see this week's issue of Investors Chronicle or the website for Emma's full interview with Impacts Environmental Markets Managers and ways to get maximum value from your funds. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.
4: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.